Paleo Runner Podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at audibletrial.com slash paleorunner. Over 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. I recommend downloading Running with the Kenyans. It's a funny and interesting story about a guy who decides to go live with the Kenyans in order to discover their training secrets. Audible is a great way to learn new things while you're on the go. Listen to a book while you're doing laundry, out on a run, or commuting to work. Go to paleorunner.org and click Audible at the top of the page. Paleo Runner podcast is a podcast devoted to finding better ways to live, run, train, and eat. I'm your host, Aaron Olson. You can find more information by going to paleorunner.org. You'll find me on facebook.com slash runpaleo and on twitter at runpaleo. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes and leave a review. Search for Paleo Runner in iTunes and click ratings and reviews. You'll also find this show on the Stitcher app. Stitcher is an app for your iPhone or Android that lets you listen to podcasts on the go without downloading or syncing. Email feedback to Aaron at paleorunner.org. Stephanie Rupert runs a blog and popular website devoted to paleo diet for women. She blogs about the struggles she has overcome and how her health has dramatically increased since going on a paleo style diet. Stephanie, it's great to have you on the show. Hi, Erin. Thank you. So Stephanie, how did you ever go about finding paleo? I found um, paleo through my mother, actually. I was in a not a very psychologically or physiologically healthy place. And I had recently lost a lot of weight and was living a very restricted lifestyle. And so my mother, who had had great success with the paleo diet, recommended that I check some things out. I was eating a very low-fat vegetarian, starting to eat a vegan diet, actually. Um, so then... Uh, So then I came to what the paleo diet was at that time in around, let's see, that was the beginning of 2010, so three years ago. And all of my explorations in it since have led me to conclude that what I was doing back then was, uh, what's what's a, some people use the word failio, (laughs) a failio diet. Mm. Um, It was, it was kind of using evolution and the principles of a paleo diet to be skinny rather than to be healthy. And so now I would say that maybe that wasn't a real paleo diet because from my perspective, a real paleo diet is about nourishment. And that's what I advocate now to uh, my community of women. Okay. So yeah. how, how long did it take you to make that transition from your almost vegetarian diet to a diet that was higher in saturated fat and, you know, had meat in it and, and things like that? Well, so when I stopped eating the vegetarian diet, I began eating a lot of vegetables um, and eggs. I I struggled with meat because I was um, a strong proponent of environmental vegetarianism. Okay. Um, So meat came later, um, but I didn't add carbohydrates back into my diet until probably I added them about a year ago and then I added them in more significant quantities about six months ago. So when I left my vegetarian diet, it became mostly vegetables and um, fish and eventually some meat products. And then I rounded it out with the rest of it over time. Okay. So you blog about how the paleo diet specifically affects women. What what are some issues that women need to think about as they're going on a paleo diet? Right. So the most important thing for women relative to men is that we 
we have a complicated system in our bodies that's for making babies, right? So this system in places, it's pretty sensitive and it's very powerful too. So when we undertake paleo diets or any kind of diet, or when we do anything in our lives, we need to be aware of the fact that our hormones can react to it um, in ways that we're not necessarily anticipating and in ways that just don't happen for men. So part of the reason I began writing the blog that I do now is that I was coming to realize that the principles I was undertaking and the literature I was reading and the blogs I was reading were all kind of about written by men and defaulted to male health. So I began doing some digging in the literature to see how these principles apply differently to men and to women. And it turns out that there is a concrete difference between um, dietary and nutritional needs. Uh, I'm thinking particularly about fasting. I don't know if you're aware of the work that I've done on intermittent fasting, but... No, talk about that. Yeah, sure. So um, last summer, I guess, so in the summer of 2012, God, it seems much longer ago than that. um, Before that, I had stumbled across... um, I have some health issues, right? I have polycystic ovarian syndrome and hypothalamic amenorrhea and hypothyroidism, all of which are tied together, right? Like we talk about them like they're different uh, syndromes, but for me, they're all very much related. And I had this problem and something that I came across in the paleo sphere was like, you should fast. Fasting is really good for you. It lowers your fasting insulin levels, right? It lowers your glucose. It helps your metabolism and yada, yada, yada. makes people sleep better and weight maintenance is great. And there's mm-hmm. all these benefits for cancer and your thyroid and whatnot. So I decided to try fasting to work on my problems and it did nothing but make them worse. Um, I had really horrific acne and it got worse I slept poorly and that got worse and I kept thinking that I just wasn't doing it like well enough. You know, I needed to find the right way to fast and all of that. Mm -hmm. And so last summer I did some digging and I found a, you know, Mark Sisson is one of the prominent figures in the paleosphere and he had advocated fasting more or less for a wide variety of health reasons. And so I went back and I read his posts and I read the citations that he made to references in the literature and what I found was that in he had linked to some articles saying that they recommended intermittent fasting. And when I read the articles myself, what I found was that they recommended it for men, but that for women there were um, definitely cautions, precautions that we needed to pay attention to. Um, for example, in in rodent studies, female rats when they fasted would um, they'd get insomnia and they would get anxiety um, and sort of an upregulation of all of these traits that are designed to make uh, mammals forage for food right and the same thing happens in female models and we know this pretty well from looking at the literature on female starvation it just turns out that fasting mimics starvation in many ways so And in some cases, insulin sensitivity gets worse for women. Um, And there's been very few studies on this, and it's completely contextual. And this is usually for normal weight rather than overweight women. So we need to be very careful about different populations we're talking about. But what I found mostly is that women have a potential to have negative health consequences from fasting, whereas men almost never do, so far as I can tell um, in the literature. So restrictive behaviors like fasting, like keeping carbohydrates low, exercising excessively, all of these things tend to not have negative effects on men and can really actually have positive effects for men. But for women, it's a much more nuanced story. And again, it can be a positive experience for women, especially women who are 
um, you know, obese or heavily overweight, but it's a complicated story. And so we just need to be careful when we're doing these things and to focus on making sure we're getting proper nourishment and nutrients rather than focusing on weight loss goals. Okay. So do you think that that could have anything to do with the fact that women might have been more of the gatherers in our ancestral in the Paleolithic and men maybe did more of the hunting? And so women would be taking in more throughout the day? You know, that's not, it's not a hypothesis I've entertained and I, I hesitate to say yes or no, but I hesitate to say yes, mostly because I don't, I don't know enough about Paleolithic cultures and I don't know if anybody really does to say, um, to hypothesize about what their, their eating habits were throughout the day, even if they were hunters versus gatherers. Mm -hmm. Um, I would, I know that foods that they gathered, I think tended to need to be prepared, right? Like, uh, potatoes would need to be prepared in order to be eaten fruits. Of course not. So that's an interesting idea. I think that's Mm. a really interesting idea. I think it's definitely, um, definitely an issue of just assuring the body that it's been fed, right? So you can, I mean, a woman can go a fair amount of time without eating and be fine. But if she does this like over and over again, her body's going to start reading it as being in a state where food is less available. And if food is less available, it doesn't want to nurse a baby because it's going to put you in danger and it's going to put the baby in danger, right? So if, if you're constantly sending your body signals that it's um, not being fed as much as it wants, then it's going to shut down reproductive activity and a whole bunch of um, negative hormonal type effects can occur. Mm-hmm. Um, so that definitely happens because it's trying to protect babies. But, um, you know, a woman can go a significant amount of time without eating, especially if she's eating a ton of calories, right? If you eat a thousand calories in the morning, then if you go eight hours, you're going to be fine. But if you're just picking throughout the day, right, if you're acting like a cow or whatever, you know, if you're <laughs> grazing, then you need to make sure that your body is constantly um, in caloric balance, I guess. Okay. So you mentioned PCOS as we're speaking. What exactly is that? And was that related to your strict vegetarianism or is was that something that developed when you went paleo? Yeah, it's it's funny. It would be nice to tell the story that I got this horrible problem from being a vegetarian and paleo fixed it. Uh, but that's definitely not the case. Um, polycystic ovarian syndrome is an interesting thing and um, that's why I wrote a book on it. <laughs> but it's generally regarded in our society as a condition of excess, right? You're overweight, so you're producing too many hormones and your ovaries are kind of panicking. That's the basic story, right? With Especially when you have elevated insulin levels, then your testosterone levels can go through the roof. And that's not good for your ovaries. It's not good for hormone balance. And so it can um, cause a woman to be infertile and cysts to grow on her ovaries. But PCOS, I found when I experienced it, and then I later confirmed this by reading the literature, um, can also be a condition of um, restriction because you can throw off hormone balance in any way. It just so happens that in our society, people tend to have excess. And so PCOS has been regarded as a condition of excess. But just because that's been 60% of the cases in the United States doesn't mean that it's all of them. And PCOS affects um, anywhere between like five and 30 million women um, throughout their, at some point in their lifetime. Um, so my PCOS, I think was probably related to my vegetarianism, although it was more because I ate such a restrictive diet. I ate probably 1200 calories a day and was, um, cycling for an hour or two every day and lifting weights daily. 
Um, so I was operating in a pretty low caloric range and I lost a lot of weight pretty quickly. And that can really suck all of the hormonal life out of a woman's body and, and fast. And so my type of PCOS is the type of PCOS um, that women get from, um, again, sending these starvation signals to their bodies. And so when I went paleo and I didn't start eating more, I went paleo and I continued to eat very little. I probably did. I didn't eat all that much fat. I didn't eat all that. I didn't eat carbohydrates. Um, I wasn't eating much at all. Hmm. So the paleolithic foods wasn't enough to fix my problem. What I needed to do was reorient my approach to it, my mindset and my lifestyle. Okay. And how have you done that? What foods have you incorporated into your diet that allow you to feel nourished? Right. So again, it's not so much a matter of which foods as it is a matter of how I'm eating them. Um, well, it, so at first I wasn't eating carbohydrates and I had to add those back in. And I think um, it varies by women, but hundreds, thousands of women in my community have voiced to me noticing a significant improvements to their health when they add carbohydrates back into their diets if they've been on a low carbohydrate diet. So I think that carbohydrates um, are important for women coming from a place of starvation um, to consume. And so um, I began eating carbohydrates. Of course, I eat things like liver, which I love just enormously. I eat um, a lot of fish as well. And I make sure that I have to make sure now that I don't go hungry for very long. As soon as I feel hungry, I make sure that I eat, which is why I was um, shoving my face full of apples before we got on Skype. <laughs> um, and that's very important. I actually don't sleep through the night unless I have been fed adequately throughout the day. And this is something that women who have had this kind of starvation type experience, um, this is something that we then experience as we're overcoming that, is um, needing to eat regularly and to make sure that we're always fed. And so for me, it's been stopping thinking about my diet as something that's going to help me stay fit and attractive and in which I mean it does but that's going to help me stay thin right and now think of my diet as something that's nourishing me and giving my body the the stuff that it needs to heal and to perform and to you know be fertile and have a sex drive and sleep through the night these are all very important things so I've reoriented my focus on healing and on eating as much food as I need, on exercising much less than I used to, and on making sure that my body, um, yeah, that I'm giving it what it's asking for, which I okay. did for a very long time. That's interesting that you, you're you exercising less than you used to. Is that I, I know that's something um, that a lot of people in the paleo community have emphasized is doing a little bit less, but doing it sometimes more intensely, and you'll get the same effect. Have, mm -hmm. Is that the type of thing that you're doing? Actually, no. Well, no. I. It's funny. I think that when um, people, women, I can't. I won't speak for men, <laughs> and I shouldn't speak for women either. But my experience has been that um, we tend to think that the level of exercise we're doing is normal. It's hard to see like what we're supposed to be doing. Um, for example, if you go to the gym every day, that seems like the right amount of exercise. Um, and I used to go to the gym twice a day and I compared myself to, you know, Olympic athletes and all these things. And I thought that I didn't exercise all that much, but we all live in different contexts and we have different needs and, um, our bodies are demanding different things. And so I think, um, for people who haven't been restrictive or for people who are overweight, um, this model of doing intense exercise is great and is super helpful. 
And I also think that for like thin and healthful women, it can be really great as well. But again, coming from a place where it's important to um, to meet the body's needs and to not stress it out, right? I stress is another big player in reproductive dysfunction. And as a matter of fact, between five and ten percent of women experience um, infertility at some point in their lives because of stress and just psychological and you know size based um, influence as well. And so. Making sure that the body isn't stressed is really important. And I advocate to women, you should take a nap. You shouldn't make yourself exercise. Um, exercise should be something that comes easily and naturally and in a pleasurable way. And so, yeah, I do do high-intensity work, um, maybe once or twice a week. And for me, coming from my past, that's a lot less than I used to do. I used to do an hour-long sprint workout every day. Mm-hmm. And so, <laughs> right, that's a lot. And mm-hmm. it um, and it wasn't like just cr- – it was chronic, but it wasn't chronic cardio because I was sprinting the whole time, right? Okay. Um, so now I do it maybe a couple times a week. Most of my exercise comes from dancing. I dance um, kind of obsessively. Uh, most of my free time is spent dancing. So, um, yeah, that's what I mean by less. And I still lift weights. I think weight-bearing exercise is, of course, incredibly important. But for um, for people who are experiencing, women who are experiencing hormone troubles, reducing stress and making sure that we're doing exercise that only feels you know, good and that isn't adding a stressor to our lives, I think is quite important. So some other things that you talk about and write about on your blog are things like acne. How does, how does, that's actually how I found your site is I'm, you know, I'm 30 years old and I'm still getting acne on, and I, even after I went on the paleo diet, so I'm searching, how do I get rid of this acne? And I come, I find a post on your site. How is that related to what we eat? Mm, Very related to what we eat. I'm sure that what you found on my site wasn't all that helpful for you because it was all about female hormones. <laughs> exactly. Um, I hope that you found the work of Chris Cresser, which is um, his work on acne is really thorough and really good, I think, um, especially for, for um, someone without a, you know, without ovaries. Right. How is acne related to our food? So acne is, has everything to do with our food, right? And I, it's very difficult because acne is so much harder to get our hands around than weight loss. You know, weight loss is, is, we kind of know about calories, we kind of know about carbs, yada, yada, yada. But acne, the research is, is, is pretty new. I mean, it's not new, but it's rare to find a dermatologist who thinks that food has to do with acne, right, um, or causes acne, and rare even for doctors. So food is related in, in a wide variety of physiological ways. Um, blood sugar spikes and um, insulin can cause... Um, inflammation and acne. Um, having a diet skewed towards omega-6 fats can can upregulate um, inflammatory processes, which you know begets acne. Um, and right, so anything that's inflammatory is going to make acne easier to come by. Um, so sugar and the O6 fats, and then the gut is very important for acne um, because. The integrity of your gut determines what's floating around in your bloodstream and your immune response to it. And so you need to make sure that you don't have toxins floating in your bloodstream. Otherwise, it's going to cause all sorts of problems. Um, And your skin is, if your skin is sensitive, it's going to show. And so an unhealthy gut flora or um, gut irritants, right? So if your gut flora is depleted from taking um, antibiotics or from, you know, focusing on unhealthful foods and not eating um, whole foods, 
or if you eat a lot of grains or just some grain, if you eat dairy or legumes, these sorts of things can damage your gut lining and they can um, make it much easier um, for for inf- inflammation to come to the surface on your skin. And then, like I said, the O6 fats and the um, insulin can also play a, play a role in exacerbating those inflammatory processes. Um, your skin is, um, especially skin on your face, it has a lot of uh, oil production in it. And um, and there's some bacteria there hanging out and stuff, but it, it should all go smoothly, right? The oil is there to protect you and the bacteria is there. It's pretty friendly, but things go wrong when, um, when we overproduce this, um, when we overproduce this oil, which is a result of hormones, especially in women's cases, um, or like, um, if men take steroids, for example, they'll get the same kind of acne that women get, um, because it's the same kind of hormone imbalance. So, um, if we have hormone imbalances, they can upregulate sebum production and then inflammation can, um, kind of run wild with it. And, there's a whole lot more down there, of course, and it's very technical. Stress also plays a big role. Um, we even have stress receptors in our skin. Um, it even bypasses the gut and just goes right to the skin, which is pretty unfair um, in my in my estimation. But that in general and bouncing around is how I understand um, certain foods to be related to acne. So you said that's something that you dealt with. Have you been, been able to get it under control? <laughs> Uh, it's funny that you ask now because I have I have currently right now the biggest breakout I've had in a very long time and um, my the quality of the skin on my face is quite nice and I'm I'm happy with it and but I get breakouts I get little tiny I get tiny things from stress mm-hmm. and there's not a whole lot I can do about that um, but I get big cysts um, like those pus filled painful throbbing things. Right, I get right. to eat soy and when I eat dairy products. Um, so I accidentally ate a dairy product at Paleo FX last weekend, and I came home and I now have um, four large um, volcanoes lining the side of my cheek. Mm. Uh, and so while it is a problem, I've figured out how to manage and work with my skin, right? And I figured out the foods that I like absolutely need to avoid. Um, but that doesn't mean that my skin is perfect um, because it's still it's still very sensitive to these foods and I'm not sure um, I'm not sure what that's going to look like moving forward and right and with the you know I'm still doing my best to to mitigate to keep stress low and to increase my production of female um, sex hormones and so as I go forward with that I don't know how that's going to continue to affect my skin another topic that I'd like to hit on is fertility what what role does diet play in fertility right huge um it plays a really huge role i've been talking a lot on this um on this chat about the role that starvation plays in fertility right and that's one of the biggest things um, that can affect a woman's fertility is whether or not her body thinks it's being fed and so that's that's one aspect of it but as with PCOS, infertility can also be caused by the body detecting like disease in excess, right? So because obesity and inflammation, you know, being overweight and inflammation are so often tied together and the bodies, like the hormones that are running through a woman's bloodstream all of the time, um, they can run to they can run to a place where the reproductive system doesn't really know what to do anymore, and this happens when when we're inflamed, 
and when we're overweight. And so this is why women, why a lot of women develop PCOS and experience infertility. And as a matter of fact, most women discover they have PCOS at the time in which they're trying to conceive and they're, um, they're finding that they are having trouble. And this is why. So there's starvation type infertility. There's the excess type. And then of course, um, stress plays a role in both of those. Um, stress is, is not good for um, women who want to have babies because the body thinks it's in a stressful environment and it doesn't want to nurture a baby. It doesn't want to bring a baby to term in a stressful environment. So, um, And then, of course, nutrient status can, um, can Im- impact fertility. Nutrient status is more important for a healthy pregnancy than it is for getting pregnant in the first place. Um, and I, that's, that's an important distinction, I think, to be aware of is that um, nutrient status is hugely important for having a healthy baby and for um, having a healthy pregnancy. And I could not emphasize that more. <clears throat> I could not emphasize more that, um, that women make sure to eat all the carbohydrates they want, that they eat the meats that they're craving, um, that they do their best to meet their cravings within the um, within a whole foods template, you know, within mm-hmm. a pit. Um, but in terms of getting pregnant, um, nutrient status is tends to be less of an issue. It's normal because a woman's nutrient status won't necessarily stop her pituitary gland from working and it won't necessarily stop her ovaries from working. Certain supplements can help. Um, some women who don't ovulate or menstruate have... Um, you know, seen that start up again if they supplement with calcium and vitamin D and magnesium is known to help with, um, you know, with insulin resistance and things and all of that helps you become more fertile. And so anything that you do to restore metabolic health, anything you do to make sure you're a proper healthy weight, anything you do to make sure you're not stressed, that's going to help you um fix your body enough so that it it feels ready to to make a baby Mm -hmm. are there any paleo foods that people or women should be avoiding while they're trying to get pregnant or when they're pregnant i'm thinking of things like um any raw foods or sushi or raw eggs i know those are some paleo favorites Mm. (laughs) so i don't know um raw eggs i (laughs) any eating raw eggs right now um I can tell you that none of the paleo health advocates that I know regularly consume raw eggs. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe that's just me. I don't know. I, Dave, Dave Asprey recommended uh, eating raw egg yolks. I talked to him last week. Oh, so. yeah. Um, you're right. That doesn't um, that doesn't surprise me. So you wouldn't recommend those to anyone, it sounds like. Oh, no, no, no. I was just, I thought it was funny. I, the reason I say nobody um, who I know eats raw eggs is because it's generally more delicious to cook them. And um, most of my friends... In the paleosphere um, are are a bit more gluttonous than raw eggs, so <laughs> okay, <laughs> um, or hedonistic, I guess maybe is the right word. Um, but yeah, in terms of uh, specific recommendations like that, um, uh, you know, it varies at different stages in pregnancy and um, yeah, a woman's like nutritional needs and what's what's happening in her body. And I think I think it's wise to steer clear of foods that have potential toxins in them, right? So mm-hmm. um, like farmed fish can be like can be pretty toxic actually and wild caught fish is much better. And um, and you have set an example that I was going to endorse. Um, oh right, you see um, mm-hmm. you know, steer clear of it. you know may as well be safe. 
um, you know, it's been shown that having mercury in your system is okay so long as you have adequate selenium. And you're supposed to get selenium from seafood as well. And so, you know, the question of whether or not mercury is a concern seafood is um, a hotly debated one. Um, it's definitely better when you, right? Uh, so if you'd rather play safe than sorry, then stick with the small fish, right? And with wild ones in terms of mercury. But that goes for other toxins as well. It's not just mercury that accumulates um, throughout the food chain. So, yeah, I recommend sticking to smaller fish and, of course, making sure that um, your foods are as natural as possible, um, you know, organic. You want to keep um, toxins out of your food as much as possible. Anything that comes in um, plastic or aluminum cans like BPA, you don't – I don't – um, I really don't recommend that you have BPA in your system when mm-hmm. you're baby to term um, because that can affect their hormone balance as they, um, as they age and it can actually give them polycystic ovaries if they're um, female. That is, we've seen that happen in rats. I'm not, I can't promise that would happen to humans. Um, and and how, do, how can you go about avoiding BPA? Right. So BPA is, um, it's an estrogenic type or at least a hormone um, interfering chemical found in plastics and found in um, the lining of aluminum cans. And um, I say plastics because even though there are many plastics that say they are BPA free, there are still um, other estrogenic compounds in the plastics. So BPA just happens to be the one that we know the most about and have studied the most. Okay. That's why I recommend that you avoid aluminum cans and um, heated, especially heated plastic products, but plastic products in general, um, you know, that foods come in. And there are, the FDA has a big list. There are a lot of lists floating out there on the internet about certain canned foods that have more BPA relative to others. And some of them explicitly don't have BPA in them. And the way to know about that is to go to your grocer and to ask or to call the food company and to ask. Um, If you go to different Trader Joe's, for example, um, there are cans of um, fish will um, may or may not have BPA in them, and you have to ask the store itself. Um, and I know that Mark Sisson has done some writing on um, on tracking that sort of thing down. Mm-hmm. Um, so right. Right- I'm, I'm thinking about um, a lot of people eat uh, coconut milk that comes in cans, but and, it, and sometimes it'll say BPA free on the can. But you're saying that might not necessarily be enough, right? Yeah, it might not necessarily. I think it's definitely a right step, and um, you know, people with Adults with healthy livers should be like capable of handling BPA. I don't. I don't want to say that it's not a problem. I think it is a problem. But BPA is definitely a concern for babies and for um, you know pregnant and nursing mothers, um, you know, who are helping these babies construct their their livers and their hormone systems instead mm-hmm. of presumably already having healthy ones that can deal with a toxin like that. Um, so yeah, so BPA is problematic and. Um, and I recommend avoiding it and um, any other toxins that, you know, insecticides and things. I recommend peeling your fruits and vegetables um, to be safe rather than sorry um, with regard to toxins. And also that's just kind of more helpful for nutrient absorption and for um, having a healthy gut. Um, fermented foods are great for pregnancy, of course, um, and all of the nutrient dense foods that we love so much, you know, liver, um, kidney, organs, whatever, and bone broth. 
all excellent foods. And also, oh goodness, it's so important to have omega-3 fats as a pregnant woman. Um, okay. Very important. So, you know, we talked about fish and you want to just make sure you have healthfully sourced fish and keep your O6 fats as low as possible. Okay. Are there any certain vitamins that women should be taking? I know um, Lauren Cordain in his latest book basically rec- recommends not really supplementing at all. What's your opinion on that? Like say prenatal vitamins or something like that. Yeah, that's a good question. I personally don't take anything and I believe that we don't need to take anything. And if I'm taking something, I am worried that it's throwing off natural balance. Um, I think that when we eat things in foods, our bodies know how to handle them better than when we consume them kind of in capsule form, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that they know how to balance that better naturally. So I personally don't take anything. And um, you mentioned prenatal vitamins, and I think that that's tricky because, um, again, you don't know unless you know what your nutrient status is. If you get your blood work done and you find out you're deficient in something, then you should, you know, go ahead and supplement for a while or do your best to correct that deficiency. Um, but otherwise, mm-hmm. if you're taking like a multivitamin, I I don't think that's I don't think that's wise. Um, there's a there are good um, companies out there that produce products that are more natural and that come in organic forms. And by organic, I don't mean organically farmed, but I mean organic as in compatible with the human body. Um, for example, you could take, uh, you know, zinc oxide, but zinc oxide is, it's almost like a talic form of zinc. And it's not something that the body knows how to handle. Um, but zinc chelated to an organic compound, you know, like a, um, like a methyl group, for example, um, or like a glucose type molecule, that's something that the body would know how to assimilate into it. And, um, and so those are helpful, but the zinc oxides and things like that, I don't recommend it. I don't recommend it all. And those sneak into, um, multivitamins all over the place. Folic acid is a good example. You know, we have this, um, we have a, like an official need for folic acid that, um, that the government and nutritionists and whatnot have been talking about for decades. But it turns out that what we really need is folate, not folic acid. And, um, you know, our body can convert it to a degree, but folic acid in high levels has been tied to breast cancer, among other things. So, all of which is to say that <clears throat> if you're going to be supplementing, you need to be very careful about it. Um, and to make sure that it's, you know, a form that's good for your body and it's something that you need. And, you know, there are things that that, that women can take, obviously, um, as they're bringing their babies to term. Um, a bunch of different uh, vitamins and minerals can be really helpful. On the other hand, I, I do think that foods are sufficient. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm not, I don't feel quite equipped right now to talk about the specifics of what mm-hmm. you should and should not be doing. Um I don't want to say anything wrong or, right. or <laughs> convince somebody to take a to take a supplement that they shouldn't. Um, but you know the the typical host like magnesium is great in a good form, um, zinc and calcium and vitamin D if you're not getting outside enough, um, vitamin K if you're not um, consuming butter or other vitamin K rich foods, iodine, selenium. These are all things that can be um, that can be really helpful. It just d- depends on the woman. Okay, so. St- Stephanie, if people want to learn more about you and how the paleo diet affects women, where can they go? I write at paleoforwomen.com. If you have specific questions, you can find my email address and some contact forms on the site. Um, There's a a deep blog with um, lots on there about female hormones and 
also about, um, you know, the psychology of eating and the paleo diet as well, which is very important to me. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's me. Check out. Thanks so much for being part of the show. It was great to have you on. And there was a lot that I think our, our listeners will learn from. Excellent. Thank you, Aaron. I hope so. You've been listening to another episode of Paleo Runner Podcast. You can find me on Facebook.com slash RunPaleo and on Twitter at RunPaleo. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes and leave a review. You'll also find the show on Stitcher. Stitcher is an app for your iPhone and Android and lets you listen to podcasts on the go without downloading or syncing. Email feedback to Aaron at PaleoRunner.org.